Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you today, as usual, from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also known as Ottawa, Canada. And before I get into this episode, I just want to remind you that you can support this podcast by joining Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash beyondbarbarossa and choose the membership level you're most comfortable with. Now, last episode was another look at the Battle of Stalingrad into the late fall and early winter of 1942. We also looked at the uh, beginning of Operation Uranus, the encirclement of the German forces and their Axis allies along that front. It was the latest in several episodes on Stalingrad, but certainly not the last, because this was the biggest battle of the war in the East. And it was a long episode, so to make up for that, I'm going to keep this one relatively short. Now, I've always said that I'm tr- what I'm trying to do is to track the progress of the war chronologically, and also to really understand the Second World War in the East, it's essential to understand the events that are happening at the same time in the many different areas of this truly world-spanning war. The various theaters of operation, as they're known in quasi-military parlance. So this episode, we're shifting our focus north. From Stalingrad and Operation Uranus, to the area west of Moscow, what is now called the Rezhev Salient, or what was also called the Rezhev Meat Grinder. But before we do that, it's time for the regular Beyond Barbarossa feature, What Else is Happening in This War? And I'm so lucky I've just been joined by my indispensable assistant, the magnificent one himself, Ragnar the Ragdoll Cat. Hello, Ragnar. Thanks for pulling the microphone. Let go of the microphone, Ragnar. And now our regular feature, what's happening elsewhere in this war? We're tracking to November 1942. On November 1st, North Africa. The Allies, principally British Commonwealth forces from the UK, as well as India, Australia, and New Zealand, along with units from South Africa, Free France, and Greece, and American air support, broke out at El Alamein in Libya. Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, in charge of the German Africa Corps and Italian units fighting in Libya, asked Hitler for permission to withdraw from El Alamein. Hitler responded, in part saying, quote, There can be no other thought but to stand fast, yield not a yard of ground, and throw every gun and every man into the battle. As to your troops, you can show them no other road than that to victory or death. End quote. Rommel was a smart guy, and he thought the Fuhrer's orders were impossible, and so withdrew at night on November 2nd. By the morning of the 3rd of November, the second battle of El Alamein was over. 
This is the battle that Churchill would later call the end of the beginning. Less than a week later, on the 8th of November, the Western Allies, including the U.S., began Operation Torch, the invasion of French North Africa. Units from the U.S., U.K., Commonwealth countries, and Free French and Dutch forces landed in Morocco and Algeria. The head of the Vichy France-controlled navy, Admiral Francois Darlan, signed an armistice with the Allies in North Africa. This prompted Hitler to send German forces to invade Vichy France. But that was kind of a useless gesture, as the Allies moved quickly, sinking many Vichy French ships in ports in North Africa. And this actually led to a lot of resentment among the French. But that's a subject for a completely different podcast. By the end of November, the French Navy ended up scuttling its ships and submarines in Toulon so they would stay out of German hands. At the end of November, the Free French liberated the island of Réunion in the Indian Ocean. Yes, that's the island where the dodos were. Meanwhile, in the Pacific, American Marines and Army units began the the Matanikau Offensive on Guadalcanal, one of the Solomon Islands in the Western Pacific. By November 15th, the naval battle of Guadalcanal was over, with heavy losses for both American and Japanese sides. Although the United States could claim the victory. Meanwhile, in the eastern front of Europe, yes, that's elsewhere in the war. This front was 1,800 miles or 2,900 kilometers long. And we've been concentrating on the Battle of Stalingrad for four episodes now. So looking at what else is happening in that long, long theater of operations fits nicely into this section. For one, at the very southern end of this, the German 3rd Panzer Corps and the Romanian 2nd Mountain Division reached the southernmost point that the Axis forces would ever reach in this war. They captured the town of Alagir on the northern slopes of the Caucasus Mountains, just shy of the Soviet Republic of Georgia. And as I mentioned, the Red Army's Southwest Front, Don Front, and Stalingrad Front began Operation Uranus at the end of November in their their strategy to encircle the German and Axis forces that were besieging Stalingrad, as I described last episode. With that idea of describing what's happening at the same time across the World War to provide context and show how connected all these things were, let's focus on the subject of today, Operation Mars. Marshal Georgi Zhukov, Stalin's military right hand and the main coordinator of Red Army operations, shifted his focus north to the Moscow area. And, following the new model for naming Soviet operations, they called it Operation Mars, a much better name than the Rzhevyazma operation. Operation Mars was a plan to encircle the German 9th Army in the Rzhev salient west of Moscow. So just a bit of explanation. A salient, as you probably know, is a bulge in a line. It can be a danger for the defenders because they're exposed to the enemy on three sides. So that makes it an obvious target. The Rezhev salient, to uh, be specific, was a bulge in the lines around two Russian cities, 
Rzev, and Vyazma, and it was about 200 kilometers or 120 miles west of Moscow. To see just how significant it was, how really deep it was, take a look at map one on the webpage for this episode. This dramatic bulge was the result of Operation Typhoon, the failed German drive to capture the Soviet capital in fall 1941, and the successful Red Army counterattack at the Battle of Moscow. For a recap of those, go back to episodes 8 and 9 of this podcast. So the Germans withdrew westward to more defensible positions, and that's how this line ended up being what it was. So Zhukov's goal for Operation Mars was to send forces toward the base of that salient from both east and west, encircle the forces in there, and then destroy them. According to historian and author David Glantz, quote, Operation Mars, planned for October 1942 and conducted in late November, was the companion piece of Operation Uranus, the code name for the Soviet Stalingrad strategic counteroffensive. Taken together, the twin strategic operations, significantly named for the gods, represented the Red Army's effort to regain the strategic initiative on the Eastern Front and to begin a long march to total victory over the German Wehrmacht and Nazi Germany. Planned, orchestrated, and directed by Marshal Zhukov, Operation Mars, appropriately named for the God of War, was the centerpiece of Soviet strategic efforts in the fall of 1942. By virtue of its scale and intent, strategically, Operation Mars was at least as important as Operation Uranus. End quote. One thing to remember, this would not be the first attempt to reach this particular goal. As early as January 1942, following up on the defense of Moscow, the Red Army launched the first Rzhev Vyazma operation to encircle and destroy all of German Army Group Center east of a line running between the two cities of Rzhev and Vyazma. The Soviet High Command, the Stavka, directed the Kalinin and Western Fronts, plus 50 reserve divisions. In total, 14 armies three cavalry corps, and air support, 699,000 troops, 10,900 guns and mortars, and 474 tanks. To oppose them, the Germans had 625,000 troops, 11,000 artillery pieces, and 354 tanks. So overall, uh, about evenly matched, the, the Soviets had a well, a significant but not overwhelming advantage in numbers. But remember, offense is always harder than defense and more costly in lives, equipment, and ammunition. The first Rzhev Vyazma operation went on for three months. Three months! And yet failed. The Red Army lost more than three quarters of a million casualties. One reason for this um, failure was the professional, able German defense, supplied, supported by the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. The Luftwaffe brought in all the many tons of supplies that the Ninth Army needed and 
flew out the wounded. The Luftwaffe's success in this operation in early 1942 gave the German command, especially the self-satisfied head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, confidence that they could accomplish the same thing in Stalingrad. So how did the Soviets react to their failure in Rajev in April 1942? In true Red Army tradition, they took a failed strategy and did it again in late July. This time there was one difference. They gave up after two months, not three, and suffered 200,000 casualties. Not as bad, but still 200,000. Think about that. 200,000 men, dead or wounded or otherwise, out of the fight. That's the population of Salt Lake City, Utah, or Montgomery, Alabama. Obviously, there is only one rational course of action for the Stavka. Do exactly the same thing again, planned by the same people. Only this time, do it more. Before we get to that third pitch in this inning, let's take a short break. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English-language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So, if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow, or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it. And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did... You can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel, and all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now, let's get back to Scott, exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. So, Operation Mars. For the third attempt on the Rezhev salient, Zhukov brought in, once again the Kalinin Front and the Western Front. And as just a reminder, a front in the Red Army at this period, a front referred to groups of armies. The Western Front was logically named of the two as the easternmost of the two. It comprised the 20th, 30th, and 31st Armies, plus the 5th, 6th, and 8th Tank Corps. Generally, two corps make up an army, at least in terms of numbers. 
The Kalinin Front, situated west of the Western Front and west of the Rzhev salient, see map 2 on the webpage for this episode. It comprised the 22nd, 39th, and 41st Armies, plus the 3rd Mechanized Corps and the 1st Mechanized Corps. So the plan was for these two fronts, or two groups of armies, to attack at the opposite bases of the salient, in opposite directions, push deep behind the German lines, and meet up in the middle around the city of Vyazma. Also getting into the fray was the 3rd Shock Army, which would attack at Veliki Luki, well west of the salient itself. So I'm not sure what the actual thinking behind that was, I can imagine, but I don't have any actual answers. Anyway, in total, this was 703,000 men, so significantly more than before, with 1,700 tanks, including those uh, much-feared KV-1s and T-34s, and, of course, thousands of guns and mortars. With the German 9th Army surrounded, the next step was Operation Jupiter. So two more Soviet armies, the 5th and the 33rd, part of the Western Front, would advance along the Moscow to Vyazma Highway and polish off the German forces that were now trapped in the pocket. Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? Pinch off the salient, surround the enemy, and then systematically destroy them. What could go wrong? So let's take a closer look at this bite the Red Army plans to chew. The German forces in the salient were very different from the Romanian, Italian, and Hungarian forces stretched along the steppe in the south, where Operation Uranus was happening. The 9th Army was the core of Army Group Center, the group of armies that had reached the outskirts of Moscow a year earlier. These were tough, experienced, battle-hardened professionals, and they had the best German tanks, guns, and technology. They had been dug in for a year and had already repelled determined Soviet attacks twice in the past 10 months. Remember the first two Rzhev Vyazma operations? These forces also had significant reserves at the front to draw on. The 1st and 9th Panzer and Gross Deutschland and 4th Panzer Grenadier Divisions near Rzhev and the 5th Panzer Division facing the Western Front closer to Vyazma. In total, about 350,000 troops, 1,600 tanks, and air support. So half the numbers of the Soviets, but with more armor. And remember, I've heard that military doctrine calls for having a three-to-one ratio between attackers and defenders if you want to be successful. According to David Glantz, the strategic plan was to attack in October 1942. Somehow that launch day got delayed to the 25th of November, which was not a good day for an attack. Fog and snowy weather grounded air support and reduced the effectiveness of the traditional Red Army opening of a massive artillery barrage. The Red Army gunners just could not see to aim or correct their fire. Still, With mechanized corps as spearheads, 
the Kalinin Front's 22nd Army and 41st Army broke through north and south, respectively, of the town of Belik, marked Belly on the German map you'll see in Map 2 on the webpage. But tough German defensive operations, aided by the bad weather, finally bogged the Soviet forces down after only a few miles. At the northern tip of the salient, the Red 39th Army attacked northeast of Rzhev, but also didn't get very far at all. To the east, the 33rd Army of the Western Front managed to cross the frozen river east of Yasma, but otherwise made slow and ultimately little progress. The Germans concentrated their forces in long-prepared strongpoints, often in local villages. Often, the Red Army would get past these strongpoints only to find themselves fired on from behind. The Germans were also adept at moving defensive units where they were needed, thus pinching off the Soviet spearheads. This resulted in these attackers, who were intending to surround the Germans, becoming surrounded themselves. The weather continued to get worse. It's the beginning of winter, after all. And the Red Army lost men to small arms fire from those strong defensive points. They lost tanks to German anti-tank guns and the German tanks that were in the salient. So even though the German tanks, the Panzer III's and IV's, were no match for the Soviet KV-1's and T-34's, depending on how they're used, a tank can still take out another tank. And because the Red Army's advances were so slow and so few, they were pretty narrow. This made it harder for the Soviets to exploit and bring in more reinforcements. Eventually, the Germans began to push the Soviets back and retake the ground they had lost. Some surrounded Red Army units managed to escape their encirclements, but to do this, they had to leave behind their tanks, vehicles, and heavy weapons. By 20th December, Operation Mars was over. It was another in a long list of Red Army failures. How bad? Estimates vary from 215,000 casualties to David Glantz's total of 335,000 Red Army men dead, missing, and wounded, and over 1,600 tanks. The German losses were significant too, but nowhere near that number. More than 40,000 men dead, wounded, missing, and captured. But what was the significance of Operation Mars. What did it mean to the overall war on the Eastern Front? That's a matter of some controversy. Was Operation Mars the major objective, as David Glantz claims? Or was it as the Soviets, including Zhukov, claimed after the fact, a diversion that was intended only to tie down the Germans, prevent them from moving forces from Army Group Center to help the 6th Army in Stalingrad. Glantz sums it up this way, quote, In the unlikely event that Zhukov was correct and Mars was really a diversion, there has never been one so ambitious, so large, so clumsily executed, or so costly. End quote. 
On the other hand, Anthony Beevor, whose books about the war have been turning to more and more as this podcast goes on, disagrees with Glantz, saying that the Stavka devoted more ammunition to Uranus than to Mars. And, let's take a look at this, while there were 703,000 Red Army troops involved in Operation Mars, there were over a million in Uranus around Stalingrad, including reserves. Whatever the truth is about the intent of Operation Mars, its effect was, yes, a disaster for the Soviets, but it did also wear down Army Group Center, and the losses that the Germans experienced from Operation Mars would be felt in the near future. German Colonel General Kurt von Tippelskirch serving as liaison officer, really kind of in charge, of the Italian 8th Army on the Don River, right? So facing Operation Uranus, wrote that Operation Mars required the Germans to keep three panzer divisions plus several infantry divisions from moving from Army Group Center to the southern sector. So either way, whether it was just a diversion to tie down the Germans or whether it was, you know, a twin of Operation Uranus, Given the name Operation Mars, the god of war, I kind of think it's a little bit more important than just an, a diversion. But either way, I think, though, that David Glantz is right to describe Mars as a massive failure for Zhukov. But it was also a costly victory for the Germans. Field Marshal Gunther von Kluge, in 1942 the commander of Army Group Center, recommended that the Germans pull out of the salient after the end of Operation Mars. This would allow them to shorten the front and concentrate their forces. Hitler said no. He pointed out that his order to hold the lines in the center the year earlier, after Typhoon, those orders had stabilized the front. They haven't really changed appreciably in the center in a year. Also, Hitler believed that the salient at Rzhev could be used the next spring for another advance on Moscow. Even so, that spring, that following spring in 1943, Hitler did allow the Wehrmacht to withdraw from the salient, freeing up forces for operations elsewhere. And we'll get to those operations in future episodes. But I think that takes us to a wrap-up for this week. I promised a shorter episode, and this nicely sets us up for the next stage in the war in the East. Yes, a return southward to Stalingrad again. Because by mid-December 1942, the German 6th and 4th Panzer Armies are encircled in the Kessel, or Cauldron, of Stalingrad. It's a grimly fascinating tale. So we'll get to that in two weeks. Till then, keep your podcatcher tuned. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, especially this particular episode, which can be a little bit confusing, please see the maps and the photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. All you have to do is click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank all who have already supported the podcast through Patreon. Please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. 
And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen. Doing that, just even the rating or the review, the review would be great. That helps spread the word to others who are interested in this part of history or history in general. Also, don't forget, I'd love for you to reach out and share your ideas, your thoughts, your comments, questions, and or corrections. I hope there aren't too many corrections, but if they, you do have some, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or you can go to the Beyond Barbarossa page on Facebook. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burke. I'm Scott Burke. Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.